Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, a nightly newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief podcast, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast following yet another hearing of the January 6th committee. There's so much to talk about. Fortunately, joining us today, we have two great commentators, Dahlia Lithwick of Slate, leading legal commentator. How are you doing, Dahlia? I am okay. Thank You're you okay for having me. That. <laughs> That's okay. Look, okay is, you know, these days it's as good as you can get. And our friend EJ Dion of the Washington Post. How are you doing today, EJ? I'm great. And it's an honor to be on with a person I think should be the next pick for the Supreme Court. So it's great to be with Dahlia and you. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say me or Dahlia. <laughs> Dahlia, all the way. David, David, David. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll pass on that. But uh, I support Dahlia's candidacy. And uh, maybe maybe we can get to this, the seat that should be opening up soon, a little bit later in this. But first, of course, what I, I'd love to do is get your reactions to what we heard today from the January 6th committee. They got off to a bit of a lugubrious start, although making some key points about the law. But by the second half, it was a real barn burner with the discussion of what was happening on January 6th with Pence and how Trump was pushing Pence and their sort of cinema verite approach to these hearings where they're cutting to Ivanka and they're cutting to Mark Short and they're cutting to, you know, it. It, it, was, it was really quite effective. Here are pictures you've never seen before. It was really quite effective. What do you think, Di? I would start with the exact note that you just offered up as the opening volley, David, which is there is not one extra word. There is no speechifying. There is, I mean, if you watched the impeachment hearings, if you watched congressional hearings generally, there's an immense off ratio of verbiage to point. And here it is a one-to-one correlation between the words and the images and who is speaking and the point made. And it really is, I think, an object lesson in how to do hearings right going forward. The other thing I would just say as a sort of table setter, I was really struck by the ways in which both Judge uh, Mike Ludig and Greg Jacob 
were, again, very little drama, dispassionate to the point of almost not awakeness. Judge Ludig, I know folks felt that he was very, very slow and often talking in spoken verse, but and sometimes in haiku. But every word he said, I think, was really essential. And the most essential thing that I thought he said, I'd be curious if you all agreed, was where he ended. His kind of closing, where he essentially made the point that I think has to be made every single day, which is that this is a rolling coup. This didn't start or end on January 6th, that it's still happening. He described it as a blueprint for what's coming in 2024. And the only reason I think that's really essential is because it makes the point that is really hard to make when you're throwing Rudy Giuliani in the barrel the first day, throwing Johnny Smith in the barrel the second day, that this is not just one bad guy enabling a president. This is an entire orientation about how voting works and about how elections work, and it could happen again if we don't stop it. Absolutely true. I think your first point about how they handle the presentation is, is, is right. I think a subset of that was they learned how to handle Judge Ludic. So at the beginning, they sort of had more open-ended questions and they didn't get. Later, they sort of said, hey, you said that this was this kind of thing. What did you mean? And then he would say, I meant that. And it was just more effective. What did you think, Egypt? Well, just on, on Dahlia's point of the discipline and the choreography of this hearing, which is extraordinary, the person who should be kicking himself all over the Capitol is Kevin McCarthy, because he enabled this to happen by refusing to name any of his members who could have disrupted this in any number of ways. And so what you have is a committee that has certain disagreements about certain things, like should there be a criminal referral, but is united in wanting to tell the story of what happened. And, and you're seeing that. My favorite email of the day that I got from a friend, this subject line was pro tip, never ask for a presidential pardon by email. And I really think there were a number of sort of takeaways from today that were really important. The fact that John Eastman said, I've decided I should be on the pardon list if that is still in the works. It's not an exact admission of guilt, but it sure suggests that he understood that what he was doing was rather shady. What he was proposing was rather shady. And of course, the fact that he took the Fifth Amendment all those times, it's not a guarantee of guilt or innocence, but it is an indicator that he is aware of some of the legal problems that what his behavior that his behavior might have uh, caused him. Another takeaway from today is that the word of the hearing, alas, pardon me for saying it will be bullshit, because you had Attorney General Barr use that term to great effect to describe his view of the stolen election theories. And here you had an email from Pence's counsel, Greg Jacob, I think to Eastman it was, uh, saying, thanks to your bullshit, we are all under siege, which just gives you a sense of what was going on out there. The fact that Pence didn't leave, Pence shouldn't be canonized for everything he did in his life. And today was a kind of canonization. But the fact that he refused to leave is so important to making sure that this process happened. And you really get the sense that Trump wanted to spirit to him out there as a way of disrupting the count. 
Or the last thing I'll end where Dahlia did on Ludig, his words were as clear as could be. There were sort of some opaque moments and the like, but he said, Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to democracy. Those words will be embossed somewhere, maybe on a T-shirt in the, for the 2022 elections, but they're really important words. Yeah. And if you haven't read his full statement, which CNN made available, definitely read it because his full statement was was extremely, extremely effective. We're also joined by our friend Harry Littman, who uh, all of you know from TV and commentating in the LA Times and his own podcast, Talking Feds. How are you doing today, Harry? You are muted. Pardon me. Can you hear me? David, we can, and, and I guess also... I'm speechless. That's how I am. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I actually did feel a little bit kind of shaken up after the hearing. Look, I thought they once again. I hear you and others kind of saying things went slow when Judge Ludig did his ponderous presentation. As a lawyer, I was pretty struck by it because what I thought it brought home in that very sort of methodical purposefulness was we were talking about a view that never, ever, ever had an iota of basis. So just as they kind of sketched through on Monday how the big lie had been out of whole cloth and without an iota of basis, here, Ludig, I thought, was able to put through with authority, in part because he's a Republican, by the way, that's another continuing theme here, that this wasn't some far-fetched idea on the part of his former clerk. It was intellectually contemptible. It was a joke. It was either the work of a scoundrel or a nitwit. And so everything that followed from that seemed all the more damning. But everything that followed from that in the second half of the hearing was very harrowing. And, you know, there's a parallel universe not that far from ours. You could say 40 feet, the distance the mob was from the vice president, where he's literally, they just, you just had, by the way, a confidential informant tell the DOJ this from the Proud Boys. The vice president is torn limb from limb. That's like, you know, Muammar Gaddafi or French reign of terror. That's, you know, again, Ludic chose his words carefully. That's revolution. So I was just struck again with, holy shit, we really were not that far away, much farther than, much closer than people had recognized. And, you know, in the wake of it, I was, I felt like the blood drained from my face kind of, kind of thing. It, it really brought one, one last comment. It just brought home, they, they're doing such a good job of bringing home with vivid detail Oh, charges that we had seen sketched out. It's the exact thing that didn't happen in the Mueller report because of how the DOJ and Congress handled it. And I'm agreeing here with EJ that it's part because of McCarthy's boneheaded move. We are just getting an unrebutted, total pummeling, detail after detail after detail. Yeah, absolutely right. It also didn't happen in either of the impeachment hearings. You know, they talk a lot about Steph Curry revolutionizing the game of basketball with the three players. I, th- I think this committee is revolutionizing the future of congressional hearings by the way that they've handled it. By the way, you know, I re- really appreciate that EJ referred to bullshit. You just said shit here. I really feel that this is, you know, allowing us to speak like grownups. I was kind of struck. By we'll, the we'll, fact- we'll have more of those. 
Yeah, no, no. Well, I was about to say I was a little struck by the fact in the hearing today that when Trump apparently called Pence a pussy, right. he had to refer to it as the P word, even though right. the entire 2016 election campaign, the word pussy must have been mentioned in the press one million right. times. Right. But, you know, having said this, Dahlia, just to, to go back, Harry's point about the blood draining from it, I, I, I agree. You know, I remember sitting there watching on January 6th. And at first I was kind of riveted. And then I realized how big this was. And then I realized that something was happening that we never imagined was happening. I didn't realize that behind the scenes, there were people who said, yeah, we're going to kill the vice president. Maybe we'll kill Nancy Pelosi, uh, that they had the help of political leaders, that the president of the United States was told, you lost your schemes for getting the election are illegal. Your Hail Mary pass is to force Pence to do something illegal, who had a lawyer send him a note saying, violate the law just this one little time, you know, which would have brought to end of democracy in America. And the president of the United States was like, yeah, I'm going to threaten him. I'm going to bludgeon him. I'm going to sit in a room, a room full of people. We had a picture of the room full of people he was sitting in. And and all of them, including his daughter and everybody, are saying, yeah, he was he was threatening Pence. And then and and this is where I'm going to stop this wrap up in the midst of all of this. And we know that Trump said, you know, maybe if the crowd killed Pence, he'd get what he deserved. But in the middle of all this, Pence is down in the basement of the Capitol. And he's like, no, I'm not getting in that Secret Service car. And, you know, there was some, you know, like he's doing it because he doesn't want to be seen leaving the Capitol. But that wasn't really the subtext, because what it was, was you're not the one behind the wheel. I don't know where they're taking me. I don't trust the Secret Service under Donald Trump. What did you think of all that, Di? It was just kind of mind-blowing. There were so many ways to read. I don't know who's behind the wheel. You're not the one behind the wheel. I, I Of course, there was so much God talk. I was like, my brain went to Jesus is my co-pilot. I won't lie. Like I couldn't figure out exactly what he was saying, but I think it was at that point, and this was such powerful testimony from Mark Short, that he had to brief the Secret Service that now Pence's life was literally in danger. And for me, that was another one of those blood drained from my face moments, right? Where his chief of staff is saying, I think this crowd is going to turn feral and the vice president needs to be safe. So I, I, I don't quite know what Pence exactly was saying there, but it was some version of, uh, I, A, can't leave because if I leave, democracy is imperiled, or I don't know what the hell is happening out there and I don't feel safe. But the one thing I do want to pull up from what you just asked, David, I have always been struck by the split screeniness of January 6th, because on the one hand, we were seeing a violent, bloodthirsty mob that was, in fact, responsible for deaths and mass destruction of property and was chanting, hang Mike Pence and putting up, you know, a hangman's noose. And then there was this over-the-top costuming, you know, the funny bear outfits and the Confederate flags and the ways in which it all looked cartoonish and silly. And it has allowed us to have this split-screen story we tell where on the one hand, this was a genuine insurrection and a bloodthirsty mob. And on the other hand, you know, it was just people visiting the gift shop and uh, were making too much of it. 
I thought one of the things that was so well done today is that that this idea that it was kind of a campy pulp fiction, you know, winking, not really that dangerous, was fully put aside. I don't think anyone could look at the footage or hear the testimony from either Greg Jacob, who is, as you say, just, you know, right at arm's length from a mob that wanted to kill people. And I think the thing that really happened today that was profound in terms of shifting for me was the sense that all of these staffers are testifying, right? And they're like, oh my God, this is out of control. Now it's out of control. People who are in the White House who are describing what's happening in the Oval. And for me, that recognition in real time that one by one by one, folks were looking around and saying, oh my God, this has gotten way out of control, except John Eastman and Donald Trump, except John Eastman, who the next day is still pushing for this, who says, by the way, now can I get what I wanted? And except Donald Trump, who amends his speech at the Ellipse to add Mike Pence back in. And so I just think one of the things that today really crystallized was that any sentient human being who was experiencing this in real time at some point came to the understanding that this was not fun and this was not a rollicking crowd. This was an insurrectionist mob that wanted to kill people. And there were a couple people who never came to that realization and that who doubled down. And to me, that was the real white face jaw drop of the day. Yeah, you know, EJ, as I, as, as I think about what everybody's saying here and, and what Dahlia is saying just there, you know, I, I take Harry's comment and Dahlia's together because you get this sort of white face moment. Harry talked about the alternative universe. And what today made clear was how paper thin the division was between our universe and that universe. And that if a crowd had turned right instead of left down a hall, if a police officer had not been where the police officer should have been, if Pence, you know, was at one point it was described as one single pane of glass away from the crowd, that you could have had Pence killed or Nancy Pelosi killed or AOC killed or this event postponed. And then you think, oh, my God, we really dodged a bullet. And then you end with Ludic's comment, which is, no, you didn't dodge a bullet. They're still out there. They're trying to elect secretaries of state across the country who are going to judge the elections you know, on, on partisan terms. Eastman is still out there. Trump is still out there. They're still trying to do this. So we dodged a bullet, but there's still bullets flying at us, EJ. I couldn't agree more. By the way, it's a sign of my profound respect for you that this Celtics fan will not say a word about your reference to Steph Curry earlier. But it was a good analogy anyway. I I think the Celtics have had more three-point shots in the, the playoffs than the Warriors have. So you can you you can say they've actually picked up the revolution. That's well said. I I appreciate that. No, every point you just made is so, so important. There there are a couple of things in all of these comments that I think we should underscore. Those of us who are political junkies assume that lots and lots of Americans had seen lots and lots of footage of this event and had absorbed this event in some detail. Most Americans didn't watch the impeachment hearings, and some of that footage was not even as dramatic or clear as this footage. What's the other striking thing besides this being so well choreographed and put together 
is that these hearings really have penetrated the mainstream news in a very serious way and have made this alive, I think, for a lot of people. I'm not going to predict that this will change the course of history or even change the course of this election. But I think that, as you suggested, and as Dahlia suggested, they, they put the lie to so many false interpretations of what happened on that day. They made very clear how just god-awful, violent, dangerous, thuggish, any a whole series of words you want to use, this really was, and how close it came, how close it came to succeeding. And I think the other thing that they have brought home again and again, we've noted that uh, you know Trump wasn't unhappy about this violence. Eastman wasn't unhappy about this violence. They have written one heck of a criminal indictment without writing the indictment of Donald Trump from beginning to end, where they're trying to show he couldn't possibly have really believed he won the election and he can't use that as an out in a suit. He really did understand the linkage between the mob and preventing a count of the electoral votes. You know, we can get into whether the committee should uh, do a referral, a Justice Department referral or not. But in a sense, everything they've done has been a referral to say Donald Trump broke the law in many different ways, including, by the way, wire fraud, maybe on the fundraising stuff. And I, I think there's no denying that. And Liz Cheney would have been, by the way, a heck of a prosecutor if that had been her chosen field. One of the key points here is that this committee has been extremely lawyerly in the best sense without being extremely lawyerly in the worst sense. Not <laughs> verbose, no weasel words, getting directly to the point, but methodically building a case, by the way, with a bunch of witnesses who are virtually all Republicans. You know, that one of the things that they've done, I think, masterfully is taken the partisanship out of this by saying, you know, look, these are, you know, these are White House staffers. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's really special. But there was another bit of breaking news today. And the bit of breaking news was DOJ said, hey, please send over the transcripts of, of the depositions that you've been taking. I heard some people on TV and toning, you know, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, you can't stop the, you know, the, 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 the committee can't impede the Department of Justice. But then I heard Benny Thompson saying, you know, we're going to do our job and then we'll get around to this. And I could only think in the back of my mind, you know, maybe had DOJ enforced more of the subpoenas and been more respectful of the work of the committee, the committee might be a little bit more responsive to DOJ. This is a very complicated knot of a story. So why don't you unravel it for us, Harry? Sure. So several points. First, you're right. They uh, write a letter today that get, that portrays some urgency. To me, David, I think that is because there's ongoing litigation. This just started with the Proud Boys. That's where they get this confidential informant they revealed today who said we'd have killed them. And they want some of the evidence right away because I think they want to use it for detention hearings. In terms of getting the whole corpus to be able to use for trials when they put it on, they're going to get it. I think they know they're going to get it. But the committee is very jealously guarding it because they want to be able to dole out these bombshells with each hearing. And they know that might be the ticket to having people listen to them. On your point about the Republicans, so first of all, on your general point, 
100%, completely methodical, not plotting, not boring, and rather just the facts. This is a really, really well, it's the best committee, investigative committee Congress has ever had. And for one reason is they're really stocked with former prosecutors at the staff level, not to mention guys like Schiff, who, who have done it on the professional level. But we've been talking forever. When are the stu- when are the Republicans going to step forward? They know it's all a lie, et cetera. And we're referring to the McCarthy's and Cruz's. It looks like that won't happen. But we're having some version of that, I think. It's not simply that it makes it more credible that you have members of the Republican establishment like Ludig and Barr who are saying these damning things about Trump. But it's also a version of the Howard Baker, uh, Barry Goldwater famous move when people from his own circle, you know, said Nixon can't be supported anymore. Ludig in particular, it was was so categorical in the condemnation of Trump and so deeply offended by a morally odious as well as legally indefensible view that would that would trample the Constitution. And I think that is persuasive to people. At the end of the day, what's it going to take? Because just Tuesday, right, we had people elected on the basis of a big lie. And Ludic specifically warned about the clear and present danger of 2024. On the other hand, let's say 25% of the, of the big lie partisans or the whatever 60% you hear of Republicans actually now are peeled away from these hearings. Is that enough at least to dodge the biggest bullet of Trump's continuing sway going forward? Although, you know, query what happens to with DeSantis and Abbott and others. I mean, I think they've done their job so well that you can you can actually see this as being the end of the fear. You know, I may be drinking my own Kool-Aid after the hearing, but the end of the prospect that Trump is the most powerful politician in America, that, you know, other dangers will remain and that could all fade quickly. But I do want to say that the committee's work has been so solid in particular because of how it's marshaled points of view that you wouldn't have expected and that seem especially persuasive. Totally agree. And I just want to say, I, I agree with your assessment about Trump. And I think at, in retrospect, we're going to say Liz, Trump may end Liz Cheney's career. Liz Cheney is ending Trump's career. And this would not have resonated the way that it did if Liz Cheney didn't step away from the Republican leadership and do this. And I don't agree with her on almost anything, but I, but I, would, I, would, I would say that. Um, normally at this point, we take a little break. And uh, we say goodbye to people who are uh, in the general public and say, you want to hear the whole podcast, be a member. I'm not going to do that today. I think it's too special, too important, and would only encourage you that if you're not a member and you listen to the rest of the podcast, and you think, gee, that was valuable, then become one. You know, it's all $5 a month or something like that. EJ, I cut you off. What did you want to say? Well, what I want to say is I absolutely love Harry's hopefulness, and I couldn't agree more about the importance of Liz Cheney and what she chose to do and how good it is that this story is being told by Republicans. But I was also, I have also been struck by how different this is from the Watergate era, because they had to get a federal judge to do this. They had to get staffers on tape. You do not have, besides 
Cheney and Kinzinger and on some days Mitt Romney, you just do not have Republicans out there saying the kinds of things that a lot of Republicans were willing to say about Richard Nixon back in 1973 and 1974. They're not there. Secondly, while these hearings are going on, the voters of South Carolina destroyed in one district a congressman. He got 25 percent of the vote, an incumbent in a primary against a Trumpist candidate who got 50 percent. So he goes down two to one because he voted to impeach Trump. The surviving Congresswoman, Nancy Mace, she had criticized Trump early. She became so sycophantic to Trump. She went in front of Trump Tower and said, I was your supporter. That's the only way she barely won. And worst of all, in Nevada, the Republicans nominated one of the leading election deniers in the country for secretary of state. And he has said that he wouldn't have recognized Biden's victory uh, in Nevada in 2020. So I wish I could feel I'm usually the hopeful one in, in a lot of these political conversations. But boy, there are a lot of forces in the Republican Party that are still pretty strong on the wrong side of all this. Maybe this will give heart to more Republicans. I'd like to hope so, but I, well, I don't know, think it's I'm, there I'm, yet. I'm usually the pessimist. And and I will say, you know, I wrote a comment in the Daily Beast uh, yesterday in which I gave four reasons in which I thought that democracy might survive. It was, you know, fairly positive. The bulk of it had to do with this committee. I would posit the following, and I do this very cautiously, but the Republican Party was not coming out against Nixon until the tapes, until there was a smoking gun. I think you'll, we may find that these hearings are the equivalent of the tapes. And there was a morning consult Politico poll a couple of days ago that showed that essentially two thirds of Americans believe, including half of Republicans, believe that people who wanted to steal an election should be prosecuted. Uh, and also, when I was lamenting in a, in a pessimistic mood earlier today, uh, one of my Democratic uh, consultant colleagues sent me a list of Senate races where Democratic candidates are doing pretty well versus some nutty Republican candidates. Can I briefly exercise my prerogative to be the biggest Debbie Downer in every room in in uh, the new millennium? Um, I worry about two things that that EJ just flicked at that I want to say really exp expressly. I worry that these hearings may serve as a power wash for the worst forms of Trumpism, that the people who are going to come out smelling like roses, chief among them, Mike Pence, who was almost sainted today, and the same Mike Pence who has never been clear that he renounces what, what happened and has described that day in January as just another day. But I think among the people who are going to come out smelling like roses are people like Bill Barr, who did a really good job of power washing himself. And yet he was the person going into the 2020 election who was lying about mail fraud and lying about voting in order to constrict voting. So I just worry a little bit that the exact opposite of what Harry is hopefully, you know, tilting at, which is that if we come out of this saying, you know, thank God that Trump is gone and John Eastman is gone and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell are gone, and that when Josh Hawley comes along and does it clean, then we really, really will have lost something profound. 
And just tag to that briefly, I would say we can't only look through a political lens at this because we can talk about races that are being won and lost by big lie proponents. But the fact is, as a legal matter, as a constitutional matter, the thing that Mike Ludig was warning about is not a political problem. It is a legal problem. It is the independent state legislature doctrine. It is vote suppression. It is the 19 states that have passed laws making it harder to vote because of the big lie. None of that has anything to do with Trump and Trumpism. That is a conservative legal movement that has determined that they're going to use exactly the things that were done in 2020, but next time they're going to get them right in 2024. And that's how an election is going to get decided. So I just want us to be really careful to disaggregate the political hopefulness of these hearings from the message, which I think should be the Republican Party wants fewer people to vote and they have a mechanism to set aside the 2024 election. And that is not tagged to Trump and Trumpism. I don't think you're Debbie Downer. I think that was Debbie discernment, <laughs> because I, I, I just think those points are very important. Uh, one quick point, uh, David, I, I'm grateful you did point out that we romanticized the Watergate era and Republicans of the Watergate era. But there were Republican votes for impeachment on that committee. And there were Republicans like Howard Baker, who was fairly pro-Nixon, but was willing to engage in a serious way early on in the quest for truth. So, yes, I don't want to I don't want to say they were perfect back then, but I still think they were better than what we got now. Part of this is what what risk we're worried about. Of course, that's the Republican credo. Of course, as Tuesday just showed they're going to be partially successful. Of course, it could be pivotal in individual states. But we had portrayed in front of us and, you know, the, the potential consequences of a revolution, of a takeover. And that, I think, the committee may be effectively uh, able to beat back past the, the very close threshold we've been at. That's the, the point of, uh, you know, that's a, that's a sort of uh, middle point between downer and optimism, I guess. Let me pose a very brief question to all three of you. Ginny Thomas, Dahlia Lithwick. Here, First time those two names have been used in the same sentence, I guess, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like a ticket. Boy, that's a balance ticket. I might be the only person who is not on her email list. I don't think she emailed or texted me about trying to set aside the 2020 election. Um, so that makes me a little sad. Uh, I'll have to try harder. I, I guess I would just say this, David. You know, it's a question, and I don't know the answer to the question, of whether Liz Cheney is willing to really probe whether Ginny Thomas had any part in this. And certainly what surfaced today, the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN confirming that Eastman and Ginny Thomas were emailing. We already know that Ginny was texting with Mark Meadows about setting aside the election results. We know that she was (laughs) sending emails to uh, state election officials. So we know all this about her. And I think up until today, the select committee was not going to touch her because the Supreme Court is the crown jewel of the conservative legal movement. This is a 50-year achievement. And every single person who has testified in the three days of these hearings actually wants the outcomes that Ginny Thomas's husband are going to give us, which is more guns, less abortions, and prayer on the 50-yard line. And so I just think that the idea that this committee is going to do anything at all to disrupt 
Clarence Thomas's hold on the court or the lack of ethics rules on the court or the idea that the court is a pristine body that has no connection to the political machinations that happen in the White House. I just don't think that Liz Cheney is prepared to go there because it would be giving away the crown jewel of 50 years of conservative political achievement. I think that is going to be a real test for Liz Cheney, because that's absolutely right, that what the conservative court can do going forward on so many questions is exactly what Liz Cheney spent most of her political life fighting for. Uh, So it's going to be very tricky, although I do think she takes very seriously this Trump and the Trump story and the aspect of uh, Ginny Thomas that was complicit in January 6th and what Trump was doing, that will bother her. So it's going to be, that's maybe a question for her psychologist or psychiatrist to answer for us, because that's going to be a tough one for her. But I forgot who said this first when this came out, and I apologize that I can't credit them. But if Chief Justice Roberts gets so excited and so worked up about a leaked draft of a court opinion and then sits back and does absolutely nothing as story after story after story raises enormous conflict of interest issues for a member of the court, what are we supposed to think of that? Uh, Because Thomas, this story has gone way past where you could say, oh, well, this is a small thing, or, well, that was an accident. I mean, there is something deeply wrong here. And most judges are a heck of a lot more careful about these kind of questions than the uh, than Justice Thomas seems to be. First, my read, I think as of yesterday, they weren't going to touch her. I think they now have crossed the threshold. It's not just Cheney, but also Thompson. I think they're going to reach out to her. Second, it's always been a little tricky and squeamish that her her misconduct and the uh, ties it has to Justice Thomas. They are a kind of politically conservative couple and on the hustings that way. But still, this revelation, however, the latest, I think makes her independently relevant. She's in the Eastman camp as a potential subject the same as anyone else. So I think it makes it likely they can go after her and sort of leave the court stuff alone. Uh, And then um, finally, I think that she is sufficiently in the thick of it. It's going to be really interesting how she plays it. If they reach out to her, will she try to take the fifth and say, you know, and try to take that sort of Eastman tack? If she doesn't, she's got a lot she can tell them, if only about Eastman. If she does, wow, that, you know, is is really a, a pretty big black eye. Now, maybe they let her avoid that with a voluntary interview, but that would be a really sort of dramatic choice she would be put to. She says she is willing to testify right. before the committee to clear things up. That'll be at first a, a sort of behind the scenes. We'll see what she has to say, but it's fair game to ask her about all about Eastman, about Arizona, other players, et cetera. And I think the million dollar question is, what did your husband know? She won't answer that one. She may not. But, you know, when it started out months ago and it was she's funding buses to this rally and now it's she's funding buses. She was calling Arizona. She was calling Meadows. She was calling Eastman. It sounds like this is what she was doing all day long. He was unaware of this, you know, but I, you know, I, I agree with you guys. You know, the likelihood that Ginny Thomas is held to account and Clarence Thomas is, too, as well, 
probably turns on whether she was the one who ultimately leaked the Dobbs decision. If you know she, because <laughs> then, then she will have pissed off Roberts. I'm being uh, facetious. I certainly hope that uh, we're a little bit more uh, serious about this than that. In any event, you guys are great. Couldn't think of three people I'd rather be talking to about all of this. And uh, whether it's Debbie Downer, Debbie Discernment, Dahlia Downer, Dahlia Discernment, or Happy Harry. Uh, uh, <laughs> Happy, Happy Harry. Harry. Um, there we go. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, it's it was a great discussion. I'm sure uh, our listeners agree. So join us again soon as we continue to have these conversations. And hopefully all you folks will be back. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, EJ. Thank you, Harry. Thanks to everybody for listening. Bye-bye.